Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Today's podcast is brought to you by CERN. Everyone knows that you need to do your research when making risk and investment decisions. Often, that research is straightforward, looking at financial filings, for example. But what about the tons of unstructured alternative data, like news and blogs and forums? With CERN's no-code artificial intelligence platform, your organization can automate the discovery and extraction of powerful investment signals. And the best part is, you don't have to make models from scratch or spend all your time on data engineering. Efficient, accurate, and pre-trained just for finance, your firm will get the full picture, whether you're searching for ESG signals, new portfolio investments, or catching potential risks with a CERN's no-code artificial intelligence platform. Learn more and get a special offer of one month free with a year subscription at acern.com slash fintechblueprint. Get started with the future of no-code investing with artificial intelligence. And with that, let's start the episode. Marwan, fantastic to have you on the podcast with us today. I'm really excited to talk about the journey that you've had across the payments and and banking world and really seeing the evolution of commerce over over the last uh, decade and more. So Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So maybe we just start with launching into into your story and your career, and especially, you know, how did you get into the the payments industry? How, how did eBillMe come about, and then how has that journey evolved over the last years? Yeah. So I started Veeam back in uh, 2014. I used to run e-commerce for Western Union. Prior to that, I founded a company called eBillMe, which uh, I then sold to Western Union. I've been in the payment space for over 15 years now, you know, in various iterations. I got into payments through a startup that I was involved in, in the voice over IP space that ended up with Nokia. In that startup, when I got into the Nokia world, there was a bunch of discussions around uh, mobile payments and how payments plays a role on on handsets. And that's sort of my intro into the payment world. And, and this is back in 2001 and two. I mean, it was early to the market. I just had this fascination that, you know, one day you can do a lot of commerce on your mobile phone and you'll need to, you know, have a lot of complexity. It should all be built into the device that you use. And so from there, I started getting interest in payments and and then uh, had left Nokia at the time and started what was then eBillMe. eBillMe was a payment option at the checkout that you see when you buy stuff online. If I could even ask just like these gating early questions, and you've you've used these words and they're they're obvious, but I'd love to to get your take on them. So, what is payments? What is commerce? And at the time, what is a phone? <laughs> yeah. So at the time when, when I'm describing a phone is what is today the mobile phone that you use, your Apple or your Android phone. And at the time when we started getting into payments, the mobile phone, which you know at the time was Nokia was a big player in that market, it was mainly used to make phone calls. And so the idea of actually putting payments inside that device. When I say payments, meaning that I can buy something from my phone. I can walk into a restaurant and instead of having cash with me, I can give them my mobile number and they can charge it 
to my mobile number, as an example. That was the concept of putting payments on your device. Commerce is a similar idea in that if I want to buy, let's say I go to a store, I'm working on a project to paint my room and I need to buy paint. I can go into the store and say, look, I need, you know, five gallons of this paint and it's 400 euros or for $500. And again, uh, here's my uh, mobile phone to use to charge me for that purchase. So that's the concept of using payments for a commerce transaction. Yeah. So you're sort of one of the early crazy ones who are like, the phone is not just a phone. It's got the possibility to, to be a payment network. At the time when we were doing this, when we were having discussions around these concepts, this was totally crazy. I mean, you're out there compared to the general population of which the use of the phone was mainly to either make phone calls or to SMS somebody. It was a communication device. And the concept of having payments embedded in it was a piece of another larger you know, context that this device is going to evolve to be a lot more than communication. It's going to have your data on it. You're going to play games on it. And then you're going to do payments on it. So that at the time was part of this broader evolution of what a mobile phone should look like in the future. Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things about the American journey in paytech and mobile phones is you know, looking at examples of other countries and the famous example of M-Pesa where the phone minutes are the currency and it's it's really the payment networks and the telecoms that ended up winning in money transmission. I think in the US, it's a lot more high tech. You know, the, the phone ended up being not the telecoms and not the companies providing the the actual internet access it became the hardware manufacturers and the tech companies it's just a kind of a different equilibrium that we landed on but okay so you've got these ideas and you're you're building out these technologies where do they take you yeah so when i uh, left western union i was trying to figure out you know what space do i want to be in and the one area that i've kept going back to is the idea of making it really simple for businesses to pay and get paid uh, around the world domestically in the in the country you're in as well as cross border meaning between countries and i i feel like that area is one of the most underserved areas in the market. Generally, when you have a business and you're looking for ways to pay suppliers, pay labor, move money between your own bank accounts, buy goods from another company, all that happens on Bankwire. And I was looking for a way to get these transactions done without having them go through Bankwire because that process is complex and clunky and full of friction. And that's where we landed on Veeam. The idea of Veeam is to make it really simple for businesses to pay and get paid so that when you do it, you know, payments around the world, it's just like buying for coffee. You don't think about it. You just do it. And in the world of business payments, it's not like that. It's full of friction and you have to really think hard about doing the transaction. So the concept of just doing it doesn't actually work in that B2B environment. We needed to make quite a bit of changes to the experience to get it to that state. Gotcha. So to think about the industry problem, there's the B2B angle, which I'm excited to explore. And then there's the kind of cross-border business-to-person, business-to-business angle, where you're sending money across sometimes to many people. You might need workflow to send it. And I remember a number of companies 
probably in the mid to late 2000s that were trying to really focus on cross-border. So, you know, your business in the US, but you have lots of marketers in Mexico or your business in Germany, but all your developers are in Lithuania. And companies like Payoneer, which recently did a SPAC and, and others come to mind, is one that was acquired. And always you go to the site, you know, and then there's a globe and there's the correspondent banking system. And the way I think about the correspondent banking system is like, if you try to take an airplane flight back when people flew around on airplanes, you could go direct sometimes, but a lot of the times if you're going to remote destination, you're making these hops between different banks. And each time there's like messaging between the banks and fees and things break and people mistype an information. And so you're doing these transfers and they're, they're wildly expensive and slow. What was wrong with that generation of companies trying to use correspondent banking to solve for B2B cross-border? Like, what, what do you think happened to that? And how are you thinking about improving on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, when you move money on Bankwire, it's full of friction. So let me describe that friction so that when we talk about different experience, you see the difference between the two. So first thing you do when you go to do Bankwire is you got to get as the sender of the payment of the money, you need to get a lot of information about the receiver. So the receiver's bank name and address, IBAN and BIC, so that the bank account information of the receiver, the SWIFT codes, you gotta figure out the currency pairs. You then have to pay a fee to send money and you gotta make sure you do it before cutoff times. If you miss cutoff times, you you know you have to line up for the second day. And then what happens is when you send the money, you don't really know what happens to it. You have to wait till the money arrives from the receiver's bank account, who then will send you a message that, hey, I received your funds. So that's the payer experience. The receiving experience is very similar. The receiver doesn't know when they're going to get paid. So they constantly check their bank account to make sure, is there money? Did I receive my payment? And after checking multiple times, they realize that, hey, there's been a deposit. The thing is, they don't know what was the foreign exchange rate applied. So they don't know what the cost of the payment. And then they have a harder time figuring out what money belongs to what invoice. So think of, you have a business, you're in Germany, you sent 20 invoices out, you got payments hitting your bank accounts in euro. And in that stage, you're not exactly sure what euros belong to what invoices because the invoices are in US dollars. And then further, you know, you're not sure how to actually reconcile that data to your accounting system. So if you're using, for example, QuickBooks or NetSuite or whatever you're using on the accounting side, you got to tie it all together so that you close the transactions and mark the invoices paid. And so you got to figure out how to tie it all together and that you have to do manually. So that's the way it works today. The reason why it works like that, because money ends up going from a bank to a bank to a bank to a bank. So when you have so many banks in the middle, you end up with more fees and longer time to move the payment. So what we're trying to do with Veeam is a very different experience. The experience looks like this. When you log in, you want to pay your supplier in Germany. What you do is you enter the email address of the supplier in Germany and the amount of money you owe. That's it. So then a message goes out to the German side that, hey, you're getting $10,000 USD. The equivalent of this amount is whatever the local amount is in euros. And then the receiver makes a decision. What do they want to do? Do they want to keep it in euros, in USD, in pound, whatever currency they want? And then they give instructions to Veeam what their bank account, where to deposit that money. Okay. The difference in this approach is that the payer gets very little information to move the payment. All I need is an email and an amount and I'm done. The receiver gets to make a decision on foreign exchange, gets to see the data. So what what happens is when we send the payment to the German counterparty, we're telling the German counterparty that this payment belongs to this invoice and here's the invoice number for record so that when you export this data into your accounting system, it all ties up. 
so the data and the payment come together. So that has value to the receiver. Also, because we're moving the payment on a routing module called multi-rail, multi-rail is a router that optimizes the delivery of the payments depending on what's best available route. Instead of sending that money from a bank to a bank to a bank to a bank, in this model, in the Veeam model, the router chooses what's the optimal path to get that money to the German side. And in general, what you're trying to do is have the least amount of hops so that money goes from a bank to a bank without intermediaries or the least number of intermediaries. So that optimizes time. So what ends up happening in traditional markets, bank wire is full of friction. Some of the players that came into the market had better effects and the simpler UI, but didn't fundamentally provide a different experience to the user. What we're doing with Veeam is providing a fundamentally different experience to the user. Absolutely. And it's from a user experience perspective, what sticks out to me is that the recipient has the highest willingness to pay in terms of committing time to answer these questions because they're getting paid. And so they'll optimize how they get the money and where it goes and how it connects to their invoices. Whereas the entity sending it, end of the day, just wants to get it out. So it's an interesting flip from a, from a UI UX perspective to shift the labor, in a sense, to the party for whom it, it really matters. Yes, that's a good way of describing it. The payer has the money and they want to pay. And actually, they want to do the least amount of work because I just want to pay this and get it over with. The receiver, generally, is the party that has the least amount of information in the traditional bank wire world and generally pays the most for a transaction and generally has the hardest issues reconciling everything together. So what we did is we shifted the labor to the receiving end. So the receiver then puts their information on the system and in return, they get value from doing that. That's really the way the system is architected. I'm curious as to the rails on which this money travels and you know, companies like TransferWise end up opening up a whole bunch of bank accounts in the geographies where they're present and sort of intermediate the balances of their of their balance sheet to sort of move the money around, but really just weighing it differently across different geographies and then sending out transactions. Right. You say that you've got 50 currencies, 100 countries, and this long tail is, is really important, especially very differentiated in the B2B world. What is the rail? What is the mechanism underneath? And, and how does the, the router that you talk about work? Yeah, so there's five different rails that we use. The first one, we call it treasury. It's what you described with TransferWise. That's generally a popular method within the remittance industries is to have a number of bank accounts in different markets and have balance in them. So if I'm moving money to Germany, for example, you're not really moving anything to Germany. You have euros in the German bank account and then you, you know, if you're sending money to Germany, then you use the balance in Europe to send money to the recipient in Germany over separate rails, domestic payment. So that's method number one. Method number two, Two is a blockchain. We use that market in emerging countries. Uh, so we use it with Philippines, Mexico, Brazil, India. And so what we do is we essentially go from fiat to crypto to crypto to fiat. So we use crypto as a cross. We do it in situations where you know we need on-demand liquidity and we need to do the transactions off hours because in the world of crypto and the blockchain there is no banking hours it, it, it's a live 24 by 7 so you make transactions all day and it also comes with a better refinement on how you track 
a transaction. That's why we use that rail. The third rail that we use, we are integrated into Visa and MasterCard for customers that want to receive payments real-time on banks' bank accounts associated with their debit card. So we leverage the card rails to deposit real-time payments on your bank account linked up to your debit card. The fourth rail we use, third-party providers in very specific markets that are more complicated and and more regulated. A good example of that would be China and Brazil. So we, we have partners that are on the ground that we work with. They become our endpoint in the country. They terminate the transaction and do last mile settlement. And then we also have access to SWIFT. And so SWIFT is the last one. And the way we work is depending on the payment, the router makes a decision on which way to route it. And so typically you take inputs like, you know, what's the amount, the size of the transaction, the currency pairs, the countries, the beneficiaries, and you make decisions on which way to send this money. It chooses one of the rails to do it. So that's the way the the router works. And in general, you're optimizing on timing and you're optimizing on cost. These are the primary two vectors you're using to optimize which way to go. Roughly speaking, what's the what's like the percentage split between the blockchain rails and the card rails and the, the Swift rails? Or is it are there certain transaction types where you're like that three dollar to the Philippines should go on crypto and the twenty thousand overnight to, should go on Swift or how, how does it feel? What do they feel like? Yeah. So generally, I mean, it's a router. It changes like pretty much uh, every month. But but generally, the h- high level for smaller transactions, for markets that we need to send quicker, we generally use blockchain rails. For very large transactions, either large amounts or long tail markets, we use SWIFT. For regulated markets, we use third-party providers. For everything else, we use our own bank accounts. If you want real-time, we send it to Visa and MasterCard. So you see how the decisions are influenced by size of transaction, where the country's involved, and then also speed. If you want something real-time, we use a different rail to deliver it to you compared to a situation where you can wait a bit and get the transactions going from on traditional local payment rails. Yep, like that a lot. Which, uh, which blockchain rail do you use? So the way it was built, it's agnostic to the actual crypto. It kind of doesn't matter what crypto that's in the market. In practice, though, the bulk of it goes on Bitcoin because the other cryptos are just not liquid enough. Bitcoin is where all the liquidity is, where all the traffic is. So we go in and out of Bitcoin, essentially. It's an interesting comment. I spent a lot of time looking at Ethereum and stablecoins, so it's, but the gas fees there are such that I think the use case probably breaks for what you're talking about. Yeah, it's complicated because there's a number of factors actually you gotta look at the depth of the order book with ask spread and how tight that thing is and then actually the bigger issue is the ability for the exchanges in different markets to deliver last last mile payments and do them do them properly and so that world is is complex and there's multiple variables to to deal with yeah absolutely given the global footprint of the company how do you think about regulation and compliance and what are the the attributes that you have to pay attention to sort of what types of licenses do you need to hold and you know what's the temperature across the world for what you're doing and how as a conceptual framework, how do you think about you know running this this money business? We're a money service business. Uh, we're regulated in in uh, in all the states in in the U.S. and we uh, also have uh, you know what we call sub licenses in different markets, essentially Europe, U.K., Canada, Australia. These are all sub licenses, and we direct 
license holder in the US in every state and it's a big part of what we do as you know you know fintech in general is a regulated industry and payments is at the top of it I mean it's, it's highly highly regulated and so we uh, spend quite a bit of time on compliance matters because that's a key thing to the scaling of this business is having the right compliance framework I feel like my three-year-old right now who enjoys asking the question why after every single thing I say. And so I'm going to I'm going to do that to you. So what is a sublicense? Cuz naively from the outside it seems impossible to build infrastructure in 100 countries each of which have different regulation especially when you're using different rails and different types of assets across them. How does one put that together and I guess not only how but has that changed over your career as you as you've watched Paytech grow up? Both. So first of all I I've been in payments for a long time and so we were able to put it together because we all come from payments background and a number of us have actually gone through licenses before so it, it's not the first time we do it and that helps a lot. Second, it evolves quite a bit. So when I say sub-license, meaning I'm working with a partner on the licensing in the market that I'm operating in. In general, the way it works, if you're servicing the world, you generally need to be licensed in the market that you're sending from. So we, we service 110 countries, but you can send from almost 60 of them. So all, all Europe, UK, Canada, Australia, basically all North America, all Europe, and add Mexico and, and Australia to the send. So now you have a send countries and receive countries, you need to be licensed in the sending, on the sending side. And then receivers, the receiving countries, you only need to have licensing with a partner that you work with. And that's it. The rest of it, the receiving doesn't need to have a license in the country. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. One of the things that has happened in fintech all across is the rise of, you know, banking as a service platforms or embedded finance platforms where and maybe in an earlier iteration of this, it's the rent a charter banks that supported the lending clubs of the world in in providing balance sheet. So there's um one of the trends that we watch pretty closely is banking infrastructure as a service and that's both on the regulatory side coming prepared with licensing and sort of the basic infrastructure, as well as on the integration technology side coming prepared with APIs to to essentially pull volume and demand and distribution inside you and pass a financial product on the other side. And so I'm curious whether these entities, these global partners from from whom you would sublicense, whether there's a similar trend, you know, whether there is a also a niche of folks who are like a thin layer going across the world trying to to be licensed everywhere and then enable others to reach those geographies. Is that how the industry structure looks like or am I kind of imagining it? It's, it's a little bit of both. I think there is a need to have organization cut across different parts of the world. And in a sense, that's what essentially we do by having an API that folks can leverage because you essentially take all the work that we've done, putting the rails together, you know, the various payment options in each country and the various licensing regimes under an API that helps you just make payments around the world. So that simplifies it. Having said that, I mean, it's a big world with so many countries, so many corridors, so many currencies, so many use cases. So there's different needs for different types of players to also be involved. There's room for all kinds of players to do very well. So I think it's a bit of both. You're going to see the emergence of a number of companies that have APIs that act as sort of abstraction layer of all the complexity of uh, global payments. And 
you're going to see more and more of these players because the market is fairly big with there's so many use cases and industries. So there's just, just room for players to be in it that will do very well. And the, the size of the market, you really can't overstate. I think cross-border B2B payments is something like five to 10 times larger than the same category, but for retail, for peer-to-peer. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, consumer to consumer, like remittance industry, I think the last number I was looking at was 600 billion or 700 billion. B2B is just a small B is almost 10 times that just on the small business. When you add corporate, you multiply that by another five times at least. So you get with large numbers very quickly. Somewhere out there is a McKinsey analyst having a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. In fact, I was trying to summarize a report from McKinsey on this. They had all kinds of elaborate numbers, and I'm trying to remember it on the fly during this podcast. I think roughly <laughs> that's the magnitude. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I remember doing a, a payments report, a big payments analysis, and even BCG and McKinsey can't agree. You know, their their sizing is two to three times off from each other because it's it's just such an enormous market. Every niche is a multi-billion, multi-hundred billion dollar volume. Yeah. It's like this. It's like you're asking, is the market is the market very large or extra large? <laughs> does it does it actually matter? Exactly. It, it is large. <laughs> it is large. So maybe that's a way to pivot to some of the substance about the industry, which I think is really interesting. And is also one of the things for people who, who are not payments native, who who haven't spent their career in payments, it's really easy to get lost in, in the language of it, you know, and you know, what's a payments processor, what's a rail, what's a business, what's a merchant. I think it's it's sometimes confusing language. And there are a number of companies that have kind of hit the public imagination from from Stripe to Checkout to maybe Rapid, which are these payments processors for e-commerce. And what, what you're doing is quite different from that, as large, but quite different from that, with the focus on enabling small businesses or business general to do payments. But can you differentiate a little bit about the type of economic activity that your clients perform and then where you are within their workflows, within their process, kind of relative to some of these other use cases? Yeah, on the high level, it sounds all confusing and there's you know, it's like everybody's in the same category. <laughs> They're very different. So at a high level, there are two different industries. There are account payables and account receivables. So payouts and pay-ins. And there's also two different use cases. B2B, like I have an invoice and I pay the invoice. And then e-commerce, where I am checking out because I'm buying something and here's my payment for that thing I'm ordering online. So this is where all things get confused. So there's players for receivables, there's players for payables, there's players that do both, uh, AP and AR. There are players that are very specific to e-commerce and do very well in that industry. And even within e-commerce, there are folks that do cards very well, there's folks that do non-card payments. So they're all very different buckets. So some of the players that you mentioned earlier are on the checkout side, meaning that you're buying something online Line and you're looking for infrastructure to help move money from the consumer or the end business to the merchant. The merchant in this case is the party that's selling the goods or the service online. It's a very different use case than B2B transactions where you know you have an invoice, you get the invoice, you pay it. That's in the context of a uh, supply chain workflow or a you know service workflow where I have 
done a consulting agreement for you and I need to pay my my invoice for the money that I owe you. Absolutely. And if you go one step further in describing the growth in the market you serve and the kind of the underlying economic changes that are creating, you know, more international transactions that are creating more international business relationships and then that are empowering businesses to both start up more easily and then, you know, run their infrastructure more easily, financial infrastructure, legal payments infrastructure. What does it look like? What do you see on the ground in terms of the users of Veeam services? So just to clarify the, the question, are, are you asking me from an infrastructure perspective? Just um, kind of another wrapper of who the clients are and what are the underlying trends that are bringing them to you? Okay, yes. So we um, tailor to businesses that are anywhere from a couple of employees to about like 100. They're generally under 5 million in sales. Say 5 to 10 is on the higher end, but the bulk of them are under 5 million. They are a lot of e-commerce, a lot of e-tail startups, uh, some import-export companies. They all use Bankwire to move payments and are frustrated by that experience and looking for a very different approach to moving funds. The general trends that sort of unify them and and I think are super interesting trends. One is the rise of e-commerce and when sales happen on e-commerce, you end up in a situation where you need to make payments to suppliers for the inventory that you're ordering. So as e-commerce expands, it also expands the payouts that happen to all kinds of suppliers around the world. So that's use case that's very popular. The second use case that's quite popular on Veeam, companies that use us to pay labor all around the world. And this is an emerging, very strong use case, especially during COVID. Pre-COVID, a lot of companies employed people all around them in the city they're in, in COVID and post-COVID. The idea of paying for labor all around the world to do projects for your company is going to be quite popular. And we see demand for that significant demand for it. So that's another use case that fuels uh, adoption and transactions. I was going to ask you exactly about this, the acceleration of the digital transformation and the the inability to travel. That's been, I guess, a, a positive vector for the business, I imagine. Uh, yes, it, it depends uh, on what, what type of portfolio you carry. We At Veeam, we have a lot of virtual businesses, so they actually did very well during COVID. Uh, if you're a payment processor and you're servicing the restaurant market or the travel market, it would have been a lot harder during COVID. But you know, for our case specifically, we, we had a lot more virtual businesses. Awesome. Thank you for, for humoring me with, with all these definitional questions. But I think for our listeners, it's really helpful to pull things apart and, and try to understand the mechanics. You know, given where we are with the economy and with the industry and where you've gotten to with the business, how do you see the future? What are the trends that you see moving things forward? And then how are you thinking about product development? What are the next types of things that you're that you're planning to build? We we build product based on customer feedback. And we're always looking for input from customers, from partners, from users of the system. And generally, we're always looking to simplify and delight and make it so simple for you to do payments. So we're always looking for payment options to work with in different countries both on the send side and the receive side. We're also looking for simplifying the whole thing by enabling you to have a wallet so you can move money between wallets. Your own wallet versus you know the company that you're trying to move money to, you could use wallet-to-wallet transactions to keep it all simple. So that's the way we're, we're always simplifying in that direction. Also, we're looking for partners, distribution channels, relationships that are interesting to have in the market. So we're big fans of integrations. We've done, we've integrated Veeam into QuickBooks, into Xero, NetSuite, Magento. We like that. 
that model and we're looking for other partners to work with in that direction. So that just gives you a perspective on how we think of the product. Some trends longer term. I think there's a lot of interest in uh, real-time payments. There's interest in uh, wallets and what you can do with wallets as a store of value, as as well as a way to simplify transactions and payments uh, globally. I think you're going to see continuous adoption by the market in anything crypto. That is not going to go away. It's a market that's here to stay. It's a couple of trillion already, and it's going to be relevant in the future. Bitcoin is the mother of all of them, you know, so there's going to be continuous development in that direction as well as the key alternatives around Bitcoin. But generally, the entire market is going to continue to thrust forward. And I think some of the more traditional payment systems that have survived for a long period of time. COVID is the start of breaking their back, and that's specifically checks. I think COVID, you know, that is a fundamental change that may not kill check immediately, but it's gonna it put a dent in it, and a serious enough dent that it'll it'll start declining faster over time. To me, there is nothing more disgusting than an ATM these days. You know, just just the idea of a virus dispensing machine. And we've we've seen these numbers also reflected in bank branches being closed in mass and so on. Yeah, I want to open up just one last point, which I think you've made that was really interesting, which is technology generally has melted down these different historical financial products or asset classes into kind of just like a software goo, you know, and the distinction between money in motion and money at rest, which you call store of value, is evaporating if it is just software. And especially in the crypto world and the programmable blockchain world, it's all even written in the same code. I want to get your view on the difference between a digital wallet and a neobank or a mobile bank and a, a terrestrial point of sale system like Google Pay and a crypto wallet. And I want to get your view on it because it feels like this is all the same destination from a user perspective, whether that user is running a business or a human or an individual thinking about their own finances. But that destination to me feels like there's going to be a huge war for that place. And it's unclear whether there's really much of a distinction between a digital wallet and a bank and and a crypto wallet. But I wonder how you see it. They're going to mesh together a lot more. And it all sort of depends on what you actually do with that wallet so for example you know a crypto wallet generally the reason you have it is you have you know value in that wallet and you're going to do other bitcoin transactions or other you know bitcoin ether whatever the currency you want and maybe you want to do some nft stuff and and you're using it in that direction if you have a google wallet that has fiat in it and you're looking to buy pizza you know you're using that wallet to buy pizza so they all look the same and that they have a store of value and you know, you can move money in and out of the wallet, but they generally have different use cases uh, in terms of what you can do with it. Also, some of the stuff is basic payments in, payments out, but some of the more advanced wallet or different structures in the market are real bank accounts where you can put put deposits in them, you know, and and do much bigger type work around having cards linked into them, borrow money against them. So, so, you know, these things uh, start with basic vanilla payments and evolve to full-fledged bank account-like infrastructure. And it looks similar, but they have different use cases to the user. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for spending the time with me and and coming on the podcast. It was really a pleasure learning about Veeam, your journey. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.